Thank you for checking out the Creekside Church Easter podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Terry Riley, titled The Cross Files. For more info, visit creekside.org. How many people here are X-File fans? Anybody? Wow, you are the largest amount of uh, X-File fans there are that, uh, that we've had so far in the five services. Uh, here's the interesting thing. It was such a big show for nine years, and I thought there'd be a lot, you know, a lot stronger uh, contingency of X-File fans. I saw this uh, in the Contra Costa Times. It was probably three or four months ago. It was doing an article on the fact that, uh, I, I don't know if you know, but in March and uh, February and March, they uh, showed, a, they had, they, the, excuse me, the newspaper said they were resurrecting the X-Files for six weeks. And so they had this series in February and March. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting, resurrecting the X-Files. If you don't know about the X-Files, uh, basically they worked on unsolved cases uh, of paranor- uh, paranormal and alien phenomena and tried to track it. And part of the idea was the two people involved, one believed, one didn't. And so a pretty good storyline. But the byline that they used in the first series of the nine seasons was the truth is out there. But then for this series, they put the truth is still out there. I was thinking about that when I saw that headline, Resurrects the X-Files series, is today, looking toward Easter today, you know what? We celebrate the supernatural phenomenon that happened 2,000 years ago. Isn't it interesting today that this case is still debated? People still question the veracity of the resurrection. Was Jesus Christ really God? There's all of these people that write books about it, and yet 2,000 years later, what are we doing? We've had, just at Creekside, five services with most of them fairly full of people who say, yes, we're going to come and we're going to celebrate the resurrection. There's people that believe. There's people that have experienced the power of it. And today, celebrate it because we believe it. This supernatural phenomenon of 2,000 years ago. And what I want to remind you today is that the truth is still out there. Because see, the prior to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all the cards of hell and death were stacked against every one of us. But in one week's time, from the passion, from the entry into, into the city of Jerusalem on Sunday till the resurrection on the following Sunday, in one week's time, What we celebrate today has been a game changer throughout history for all history and for all humanity. And so today I want to just kind of launch into our time together. It's, uh, uh, I'm doing it just a little bit different way. I mean, it's going to, for most, will probably seem very similar, but I want to just give you an overarching idea of what God did for us. And um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to read a few verses to you that kind of encapsulate what we'll be talking about a little bit today. Uh, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, this church in Corinthian, a Grecian city. And he's telling them about what happens because Christ has come in them. So we'll pick it up in verse 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Look, behold, new things have come. 
Now, everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. What he's saying is, is that because what Jesus did, he came, he died, he rose again on the third day. That was the bridge. That was the pathway to give, bring us into relationship to give us access to Father God and to heaven. It's, it's, it's the reconciliation. Before there was enmity, there was a separation, a gap between us. Now, everything is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave us this ministry of reconciliation. So what he's saying is, is what I've done for you now, I want you to do for others. I want you to be part of that pathway that bring, that of bringing people into reconciliation with Christ through the way that we live, how we talk, how we speak to people, how we relate to people. And he says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. This idea, this understanding of what God's done for us. He says, you understand it now. I want you to be ambassadors for Christ. Certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. When we go through this world, we don't preach at people, but we want them to know the difference in our lives that God has made and help them understand that. Because he made the one, Jesus, who did not know sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what I want to do wherever I go. I'm always thinking, God, how can I maybe just touch people for Christ? Is there something I can say? Is there something I can do? Is there a way that I can be to help people see Jesus in my life? Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it never happens. Sometimes you got to work at it. I was coming home from Cuba, and I mentioned this just a little bit last week. I arrived from Cuba a week from yesterday after spending nine days there meeting with pastors and ministry leaders. Got in, aborted on the plane. We're on the tarmac at the Havana airport and I stepped over this gal to get into my seat, the window seat and um, I sit down and she goes, she asked me, she goes, is this your first trip to Cuba? And I said, yes. And she goes, what do you think? And I kind of just uh, uh, downloaded what I felt, what I thought. And I said, is this your first time? And she goes, oh no, I've been here a couple of times. And, and I said, what, what brings you here? And she started telling me she's a graduate of George Washington University in D.C., uh, she still lives there with her husband, who is a lobbyist. And uh, so she's bright, and she's young, highly educated, working on a master's degree. And so we're talking, and what she does is she brings technology into Latin American countries. And so for, um, uh, for Cuba, she's working to help them kind of begin to build some of the technological advancements for when they can have it. So she was meeting with some of the government leaders there, and we're going back and forth and just talking about life and families. And uh, she asked me what I was doing there, and I told her, well, I'm meeting with pastors. She goes, oh, that's cool. Didn't say much else. And then uh, this is 20, 25 minutes, and by that time we have uh, the flight attendants come up, and they're giving us all their instructions and their directives. And um, during this conversation, though, I'm thinking, Lord, is there, can you give me a few words that maybe I could just share with her about you, about the gospel? Be an ambassador. Be a reconciler. And as it turned out, uh, the flight attendants took over and they did, went through their process. And then uh, this gal, she actually put on her headphones and took a nap. 
for the rest of the 50-minute flight from Havana to Miami. When she was, when we arrived, she, we exchanged pleasantries and everything. What would I say to her, though, if I would have continued to have the opportunity? Lord gave me a few words to build some thinking around to be able to share in a few minutes. I have a friend here in church. He's now been my friend for about a year and a half. He's an atheist. And I wanted to do a video with him uh, and interview him, but we we didn't have time because of my uh, convergence of the perfect storm of travel. So I said, Bill, would you... Would you just write something to me? Let me know of your experience at Creekside. And he goes, sure. So I want to share it with you. Part of it. It is Friday, March 17th. Will I be able to go to Creekside Church on Sunday? Question mark. Last Easter, I could not. I felt it would be disrespectful. How could I enter a church on such a holy day? For I was an atheist. It was September or October of 2014, I had just recently retired with a lot of time on my hands. I had been playing golf on Mondays with two men, friends. Excuse me, two new friends who happened to be Creekside members. It was suggested that I might like to attend Creekside to meet some new people and perhaps make some new friends. They told me it was a low-pressure church, friendly and caring. I told them I was not a believer. Ah, not a problem. Just come, go, and observe. If you get something out of the sermon, keep it. If not, let it go. Well, during the rest of 2014, I went to the church nearly every Sunday, and I normally kept to myself. After all, I was the proverbial fox in the hen house. <laughs> it was, I was, however, acutely aware of my shortcomings, and I decided to check out these Christians. Perhaps I could learn something. Well, my golfing friends, they never preached to me nor criticized my lack of belief. They did not offer me friendship and love for, they did offer me friendship and love for which I was most grateful. At times I'd walk out of Creekside and I would think that some of what I heard was just simply hogwash. Those are the days that I preached. (laughs) At times, at times I was astounded to listen to pastors in the church mention a passage out of the Bible and apply it to -to day-to-day living. Forgive yourself so you can forgive others. Love yourself so you can love others. Uh, significant discussions on moral issues, seeking a better life, being a better person, etc., etc. Yes, I thought, humanism, I can relate to this. Truth is, it's hard to change, but I was motivated to become a better person because walls are put up brick by brick. I'd walled myself in, I'd hidden away from a lot of life. I wanted to do something about it. I knew that, I knew that it would be hard as I would need to start taking uh, the wall down brick by brick by brick to let in the light. There would be some pain, but, uh, but time came and I had to stop hiding. If I did not, I would be the same, lonelier than I should be, full of shame and full of guilt and devoid of a path to improve my life. I once heard someone say, What is the purpose of living if one does not feel alive? That's how I felt. Over this past one and a half years, I've been to Creekside approximately 80% of the Sundays, mainly hiding out in an often crowded room, which is not easy to do. I would think, what is it with these Christians? So much did not and does not make sense to me. However, over time, observing my surroundings in the church, I begin to absorb the love of the church, the hope, 
the messages. And I got to the point where I could still, where I could sit still during the service and smell and sense and touch, feel and hear the love. It was and is today very powerful. I am changing. I feel more peace in my life. I like and value myself and others more. And I have more hope, and I hope I can still continue to grow and improve myself. Am I still an atheist? Yes. However, bit by bit, some of the wall is coming down piece by piece. So I am encouraged, and I want more and more to do so, so I need to show up and give it time and see what happens. So much already has. I have not yet found the Christian God, but there are some quiet times when I feel like that God has found me. How strange. It's interesting when I talk to Bill. We laugh and kid back and forth about everything and He'll say, oh, man, you're not going to believe what happened. This big coincidence just happened. And by the time I'm done, we laugh because I say, that's not a coincidence. That's a God incidence. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and so we go back and forth. But you hear what he's saying. And so when I think, I think, what would I say? What would I want to say to Bill today? And he was here first service. He's heard for a year and a half now. And then he heard my message today and come up to me afterwards and just said some very powerful things. But here's what I want to start with. If you take your notes out, we're going to come back to these later too. But here's the first thing that I think everybody needs to hear. This is what I would say. This is what I would say to this gal I was sitting on the plane, the first thoughts that I had to communicate to her. This is what I'm telling Bill, and this is what I'll tell you this Easter Sunday. First of all, about love. It all starts with God's astonishing capacity, undeniable love for our world. Our world did not begin in some kind of random collision of gases or cells or by some chance followed by some evolutionary process that just kind of all comes together and begins to evolve into something that works. No, there's this divine revelation of God and two man that begins to change lives in this world. See, this loving God created all of humanity, mankind with the capacity not only to love one another, but to love God. See, this whole thing that we experienced, loved ones, was driven by the, the power and the act and the force of love that God brings. Christianity is the one major, major religion that is driven by this force and this act of love. Many in this room, probably if you went to church a day or two in your life, are familiar with this verse. John 3.16 says this, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting, eternal life. And see, we love to put the period there. That's the part that we memorize. But it's the second part that is still very pregnant with, 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 with just wonderful possibilities and information that we need to be aware of today. For it says this, For God did not send his Son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. See, God not only loved the world, but but with the depth and the degree that he loved it, it led him, it forced him, it motivated him to spring into action. 
See, we love the first part of that, that verse, but we often forget the last part of that verse. It's simply a continuation of the astounding and the astonishing, bowl me over with the grace and the love of God. There's so many stories out there. There's conventional wisdom on the street that says things like this, God is dead. Others will say, you know, God, he's just this cosmic killjoy in the sky. All he wants to do is ruin my wife. He wants to make it difficult. He wants to say what I can't do, what I have to do. He wants to take my money. All of those stories are out there, and they're not right. Unfortunately, some of them even come from the church, and the way they communicate it has nothing to do with this God that so loved the world that it motivated him to spring into action and that he said, I want to save the world. I'm not here to condemn it. When you hear some churches, they'll say some cataclysmic thing happened, some tsunami, some flood, some something, and they'll say that's God's judgment. It is not God's judgment. It is a world that is under the curse. God is going to judge. But that's not now. He comes to express and to motivate people toward him with this great love. I mean, God loves you so much. Psalm 17.8 says it this way. David is psalming. That means he's writing a song. He's singing to God. And this song is about this. God, I'm the apple of your eye. I'm so thankful for that. What's the apple of your eye? Your eye is the most tender thing, one of the most tender things on your body, most sensitive. And it's one of the most valuable things that we have. And to be the apple of one's eye, it is something or someone that is cherished above all others. It's also the idea, if you could just stand next to somebody, I'm not asking you to do it, but if you were to go face to face with somebody right now at your table and you looked them in the eye, you know what you would see in their pupil? You would see a reflection of yourself. And this whole idea of this, this, this being the apple of God's eye, what David is saying is, God, I know that if I could look you face to face, I know that you love me so much that I would see my reflection because you never, you never lose sight of who I am and where I am. And see, loved ones, that's, the, that's just a couple of examples of God's in the depth of his love for every person past, present, that hasn't even been born yet. And I want you to know that. I want Bill to know that. I'd want that gal to know that. And the second thing I would tell them is, but never forget we live in this world of evil. Well, wow, PT, that's kind of a, that's a pretty big jump. But you have to. Because we see everything is systemic to God's love. But now we see everything in this world is affected by evil. Once it enters, you have to have your head in the sand today to believe that there's not some kind of, some kind of enemy out there that is evil and at work. I mean, it's, it's, it's on the loose all over our world, and we see that at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, where it says, in fact, God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God's talking to Adam and Eve, the first two not tens in the world, the only tens the world has ever seen. They're perfect, and then all of a sudden, they decide to rebel and go against God's way and his word, and they partake of the fruit. And what happens? The fall comes, and they understand good 
and evil. And evil begins to impede itself and, and just put itself on, on this world and on these people. It wreaked havoc on, havoc on humanity. And in a short time, what happens? Not only is there enmity between people that moves to violence and murder and mayhem, which becomes the order of the day. And people begin to do unspeakable things to other people. And then you have adults who are doing unspeakable things to children. And this thing goes south quickly. The story of the human race has been affected by evil. And we understand that. We see it. Listen, we all wish. I wish it wasn't so. But we can't get away from it. We can't get away from it. We, most of us have read about many of the atrocities that have happened. In, we've, had, we've read them in school that have happened throughout human history. Loved ones, we can't deny this reality of evil. I mean, you just pick up the newspaper, you read the evening news. I mean, you just go, you look pat, you look at this last week, the horror in the Brussels airport and subway. You have people that are killing innocent people for absolutely no reason, except that there's hostility and there's hatred in their heart that can lose them, to, that, can, that can lead them to, to cause brutal murders. I mean, that is the dark stuff of the human heart. Sure, oh yeah, those are extreme cases. I mean, none of us in here are terrorists, sure. But we begin to see all of the atrocities that take place in governments and in people. I mean, we, the strongest militaries in the world cannot and have not been able to eradicate and erase that darkness from the human soul. We are so fortunate in our country to have what is arguably the most sophisticated Judicial system in the world, but we incarcerate people. We try and rehabilitate them. But guess what? We still haven't been able to remove evil from the hearts of human lives. I look out over this room. I, I know that some of you have probably been affected by evil, terrible things that have been done to you. Others of you, you've made terrible choices in looking back. You say, yeah, how could I do that? But you realize in looking back, you were influenced by evil. Isn't it so easy to be able to identify evil out there, but it's a little bit tougher to discern the evil within yourself, within ourselves, and how we think and what we say and what we do. How often have you said to yourself, I am not going to do that anymore, or I have to do this, I need to start doing this. And what happens? We, you don't do it. That's really biblical. One of the greatest people in the Bible, his name was Paul. And in Romans chapter 7, he's talking about all the problems that he's having. And he comes to this conclusion. He goes, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. And then he caps it with this thing. He goes, wretched man that I am. And I suppose every one of us at some point, if we're really honest, we could say, yeah, there's just a little bit of darkness still in my heart. There's just a little bit of wretchedness because there's those times where we've done something a hundred times and it's caused us issues and problems. And we know we can't do it again because it just causes us greater problems. But that hundred and first time, we still do it. Well, why is that? It's because there is evil. And it has just a little grip on each one of us. I just told you how much you loved and you are. 
And all of you do. You just, you know, I can take a picture of you. You'll look great today. We're all kind of clothed and in our right mind. But the reason Jesus had to come is so that he could come and deal with just some of those shafts of darkness that still reside in the crevices of our heart. There's evil. Well, here is what I would say next. God loves you. Evil is a reality. But here, you've got to hear this. God came on this rescue mission. God sent the, the rescuer, and he gave us the remedy. Jesus Christ, his only son, who came to earth to live a blameless life and to show us and to teach us the truth, how we can live and become like him. And he showed us Jesus for 33 years, but in the last week of his life, we have this thing called the Passion, where he enters Jerusalem on a Sunday, and everybody's singing Hosanna, and by Thursday, they're turning against him. And by Friday, guess what? God says, this is the remedy. And he says to his son, Jesus, you are going to have to shoulder the entire accumulated sin and evil of the whole world. And he dies this atoning death for each one of us to give us the gift of God of eternal life as we respond to his son who came on a rescue mission for every one of us. See, God says he knows we're in a jam with this evil and all the world around us. And he knows that there's even that is, with, that is at work within us. And he comes to rescue us, not only from this world, but for some of us, from ourselves. Because you know what? Some of us were our worst enemy. It's not just what's out there that it's affecting us. It's what's inside. The decisions and the choices that we make that cause us our greatest harm. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 says this, and, and to wait for his son from heaven, He's going to send him, he did, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus. And because he was raised from the dead, guess what? Jesus rescued us from the calming wrath. See, God in his love took the evil that we've done and he pinned it on the shoulders of his son. And when his shoulders were pinned against the cross, forgiveness was made. And it became the available free gift to every human being. That, loved ones, is the central message of the Christian faith that rescue and redemption is available to every one of us. It was 1988. I was starting a church in the valley, and I had to, um, I had to do construction work uh, for a short time just to make a living to be able to uh, take care of my family. Now, most Creeksiders, if they've been for her for any amount of time, they know, a, they know a, a lot of things about me, but they know this. When it comes to tools and hammers and nails and saws, uh, in my hands, those become weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> and, uh, but, but that's what I had to do, and I, and I did it, and I was doing some deconstruction and everything, and um, had this pickup a friend of mine, and I was taking it to, I had to take it to the dump to empty it. This was on Saturday. Easter was my first Easter Sunday in this church. So it was just a handful of people. And I didn't know what I was going to tell them, except that Jesus is alive because I was busy. And so I go to the dump, and I dump all this stuff. And you, you know what a dump is like. I mean, it's a dump. you got seagulls all over. You, you, it stinks really, stinks really bad. I mean, really bad. There's maggots and there's just junk all over. And, you know, you just don't want to get too close to it, but you got to get in it. And all of a sudden, I see this sign over here. It says, no salvaging. And I'm thinking, who would want to? 
I mean, really, what is it? Who, who, who would want to salvage? I said, well, maybe a Raiders fan would find something. But, um, <laughs> you know, I shouldn't have said that this service. We had a Raiders cheerleader last service. I forgot about that, but uh, she was here and I apologized. But uh, so I, I'm looking and I dumped the truck and I didn't salvage anything, but I saw this guy over here, I don't know, 150, 200 feet away, and he's kind of behind this truck and he's grabbing like some little furniture and things and he's throwing them in his truck. And what? So I'm driving out. I can't remember the exact name of it, but it was something like Ronnie's Reclamation Furniture or something like that. And I started thinking, oh, well, this guy must be pretty talented to take some of this stuff and reclaim it and then resell it. And so I started thinking about that on my way home. I said, ah, here's my Easter talk. This is what I remembered. The power of the cross and the resurrection. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how big of a hole you've dug yourself. It doesn't matter what kind of mess you're in. The message of Christianity is there is a God who loves you. And there is a God that says you are salvageable. And there is a God that says I have come to rescue you. And I will step into anything to pull you up and out. And see, loved ones, that is the message of Easter, that God, he loves you so much, not only to deal with the evil, but to come and rescue you from it and to rescue you from everything out here. See, when everyone thought that it was over, that when Jesus was crucified, they put him in a tomb, they thought he was dead and done with, everybody that was against him celebrated, but three days later, he burst forth from the grave, proving beyond all doubt that he was alive and he is the truth, and it is still out there today that can be found by every person that needs to be rescued or that just thinks they're really good but they still need to be rescued. And that's what I love about this day. It's the game changer for every life in here and it's the game changer for all of humanity. But here's the deal. Yes, God loves us. He comes to deal with the evil. Yes, he's the ultimate rescuer, regardless of where we are. But here's the game changer. You've got to choose. You've got to make a choice. I don't know about you, but what do you think is the most dangerous thing, the most risky thing that God ever did when he created mankind? Yeah, free will. Can you imagine that? God says, I'm going to make humanity, and I'm going to give him a free will. That's incredible to me. Yet I understand that free will is always the greatest expression of love, isn't it? Some of you are sitting here with your kids. Some of you are sitting here with your spouse. Would you want automatons that you come home? Hello, honey. I love you. Welcome home. Wow, this is going to be a night of passion and great, you know. Are you kidding me? No, I don't want that. I want my wife to come home. She goes, oh, man, so good to see you. How was your day? And because I bring something to the table and I'm becoming somebody that she just loves, wants to be with me, not because she has to. And that's the very thing that God gives us in our lives. Free will. When I was in Cuba, 
You want to talk? See, listen, this is what I believe about God. God is big. He's large. He's in charge. And he's in total control of everything in this universe. But and this is also what I know about God. He is not controlling. See, a lot of people say, well, I don't know if I want to come to God because he'll take over my life. No, he'll guide you to have a better life. Or some people go, well, you know what? I'm just going gonna, gonna to come to God and I'm going to put myself in the in the passenger seat, and he's going to be the pilot. No, he doesn't do that. He comes and he says, listen, I want to bring control to your life. And here, you now have control. I'm going to empower you to be in control of your life. I'm not going to take control. See, that's the kind of God that he is. He loves us that much. When I was in Cuba, what do they do? The government controls so much. I told you last week that I was in a hotel where Cubans could not go into because they had, in my room, I had like 35 channels. One of them was the CCN from the BBC, and they were covering all of our election stuff. They don't want the Cubans to see that. They don't want to see the things that we can say, the freedom of speech that we have. So Cubans couldn't even go into that hotel, the natives. I went into Havana tourist section for a few hours and we went into two different stores that were, excuse me, pretty full. In the process, we'd go in there and, uh, you know, we'd get just about whatever we wanted because we were, quote, tourists. Guess what? Cubans couldn't go in there, the natives, because they didn't want them to see all the stuff that we had access to. I went into a Cuban store, the few that I ever saw, and you go in there and there's shelves. There's a lot of empty shelves very limited access to different things. See, that's control, but God says, no, I'm gonna, that's controlling, but God says, I'm going to give you control. He's going to give us so much control that he says, you know what? You know what? You can love me, or you can reject me. You can choose to do what I want you to do, or you can choose to do evil. And we've seen in life, haven't we, friends, the results of that freedom. It's been staggering over the centuries because each of us has choices to make. God won't make them for us. Did you know that the most devastating disease in human history has been smallpox? Literally over 300 million people have died from smallpox, almost the entire population of the United States today. But providentially, a vaccine was discovered. But the mere availability of that vaccine did not guarantee or protect anyone from smallpox if they didn't take it. One by one, each person had to make a choice to call the doctor, get an appointment, and go get the vaccine to get immunized. Yet tens of millions refused. Out of fear, out of concern, out of not understanding immunization, they didn't go and they died when they could have been made well. so analogous to Christianity. Talk to people all the time. Oh, it's Easter. Oh, I just love celebrating. Well, how come? Oh, well, you know, it's kind of something about it. You know, religious holidays kind of cool. And then, you know, I get to do these baskets for my kids. And, you know, we get to get dressed up. Some of you might be thinking that. Christmas time. Oh, yeah. Isn't that cool? That little manger scene. That little guy. That little baby that came. But what does it mean to you today? Well, you know, it's, it's kind of a religious thing. See, see, Jesus didn't come to give us a religion. He came to love us, 
to deal with evil, to rescue us. And to lead us to this place where each one of us is confronted to make a choice. No one will be forced to make the choice to cross the line of faith. Every one of us in this room can go on your own personal improvement program. You can make the decision and say, you know what? I'm going to fly a little straighter. I'm going to live a little better. I'm going to be a little nicer. How's that working for you? You find yourself in that syndrome of, I know I want to do it, but I just don't. I know I don't want to do it, but I keep doing it. See, that's what I say to Bill. Bill, you're, you're, you've, you've come a long ways in your own strength, but here's the deal. Can you keep it going? Because see, the power of Christ comes not only to save you, but to do this next thing, to restore you and to change you to your original likeness and purpose in him. And that's the next thing God wants to restore us. Because see, after we've been rescued, after we choose to cross the line of faith, guess what happens? There's this cooperative effort between us and with God. There's this venture together. It's like God and sons and, and God incorporated and gods and daughters where we work together to make this inner work of transformation in our life come out. Restoration simply means this, taking something that's defaced or damaged and making it like it's brand new. Again, going back to Cuba, I showed you some of these cars last week. Remember, in Cuba, there's no dealerships. The revolution took place in 1959. So from then on, there was no bringing in, importing cars unless you were a government official, a dignitary, or uh, a doctor. So they have all of these cars pre-1959 all the way back to the 30s. And what they've had to do is restore them and rebuild them through the years because they can't get new ones in. And almost every one of these are taxis because the rank and file of Cubans do not have cars. So they get taxis and they get these little rickshaws. Now, if you look at these cars here, these are taxis. It's interesting because this is the area where I stayed in. I didn't stay in the tourist part of Havana. I was about 30 minutes southwest. Total poverty. And, but you'll see these cars, these are taxis because people had to take them. It's interesting to hail one down and all of a sudden, man, you get six, seven people jumping in there. Imagine this, you know, in Havana, tropical uh, climate, and it's about, um, you know, when we were there, it was in the uh, mid-80s into the mid-90s, a little bit humid, so people jumping in there, are you kidding me? Imagine what that's like. But that's how they do it. Look at the car on the left. You can't see real well, but there's dents, and there's kind of imprints, and it looks like they just took a spray paint on both of these, and just that's how they paint them. They're not in good shape. They, they, they run and they work, but they are not restored. Now, you go to the taxis in Havana where they want the tourists to see, and look at these. These are beautiful. These are pristine. No more than four people get in these cars because they don't want a bunch of sweaty, dirty bods in there because they're trying to attract the tourists who have the money and the tips and everything. For the ladies, I got these for you. Look how beautiful these cars are. These are sweet. I mean, they advertise these. They'll go on the street, hey, you want your special taxi? And they'll take you around town and everything. But those are beautiful. These cars, even in, in Havana, are worth upwards of probably twenty-five dollars to $35,000. And what am I saying? Here's the deal. See, when you come to Christ, after you've been rescued, because of his incredible love, he takes our life and he begins this inward work. 
and he begins to restore us. Because there's very few of us loved ones in this room that don't need some kind of restoration from the damage of this life. And God knows that damage. Some of us, we've been damaged by our parents. Some of us have been damaged by a spouse or a sibling. Some of us have been messed over by a business deal that just shafted us. Some of us have been, some of us have been hurt and defaced by life. I mean, awful things have happened, but we have absolutely no control over them, but they're there. And we want to shake our fist at somebody, and usually that's at God. Sometimes we're, we have, we're objects of discrimination and, and prejudice. It's possible. Some of you would be sitting in this room today and you feel like you're in a dump, in a heap, and there's a sign over you that says, it's not no salvaging, no one could or would want to salvage me. And see, that's the enemy of your soul, the evil one trying to convince you of that. But listen, God sent Jesus, his only son, God in the flesh, on this rescue mission to restore you. And the promise begins that I read at the beginning, 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a restored new creation. Old dings and dents and bad paint jobs and smelly inwards have been done away with. Look, new things have come. You are of great value because of God's work in you. The joy of being at this church, I've been here 24 years now is I get to see people walk in that door. That door. That door. That door. I get to see people come through those doors and become restored. They have been broken. They've been bitter. They've been damaged. They've been out of hope. And one day, they cross the line of faith and they choose Christ. And all of a sudden, you begin to see some of those things break down. If I could just take a few minutes... I won't, but if I could, I'd just tell you some of the stories of people that are in this room that have been broken. If I could tell you, man, we've, we've had the Hatfields and McCoys in this church, so to speak. And guess what? The Hatfields and the McCoys, I can't even believe it. They go to church together now. Families that have experienced salacious and difficult times with one another broke apart. And because of the awesome work of God in their lives, guess what? They're here. God's done a resurrecting, new, powerful restoration work in them. See, people don't understand about this Bible. Some of you probably look at this and you go, oh yeah, it's a divisive book. It tells us about the good people and the bad people. No, this is the good news about how to live, how to be able to get along with people, how to love and accept people and how to enjoy people and how to become a better person because of what Christ has done. It is unblindingly clear about how the church, not this building, but how us as followers of Christ are to live, that there's this pathway of wholeness and the Bible is blindingly clear about our mission, that when people cross the line and they choose Jesus Christ, they grow in their faith. We're lonely people. They now become enfolded into this community like Bill. I don't understand it. I don't get it. But it's real. It's tangible. We see hate people turn into loving people. I've seen selfish people turn into servants who are selfless to serve people. You'll see some of them today in colored shirts. Not all of them are selfish. We're 
But so many have become from selfish to serving. I've seen greedy people who live only for the acquisition of the next big thing or more money in their bank account turn into people who are generous. What do you need? What do you need? I've seen prejudiced people become radically inclusive of those people they were once against. I've seen people holding grudges release them and work to build new relationships with people around them. That's what the church is called to be. I stand in awe of what God can do, loved ones, when I've seen people come to this church. See, when people, when people understand the restoration work of God in their life, guess what? God puts into those people a new restoration vision for other people. That's why, that's why this church, so many people are involved in the community. Because they now have a vision to see our community restored to Christ and that people can live their best and that we would see the diminishment of evil things here. I see people give their time. We have so many law enforcement people who want to see that change. People give to the needy. People serve the needy. There's people in this church that give to support other churches in third world countries and other pastors. There's people that take a week of vacation Every year, and they go to build homes in Mexico for people who are living in these little cardboard shanties. And some people go, well, that's not very much. Yeah, but every little drop makes up the ocean. And it's because they get this restored vision. And the Bible tells us, here's the ultimate restoration at the end of our lives. When we cross the line of faith to follow Christ, he says, you'll die, but guess what? not the end. You'll be resurrected and you'll get to experience the ultimate restoration. I always wonder in heaven, I only, God, just let me be my 30-year-old self again. You know? I don't know what it's going to be like, but whatever it is, it's going to be the ultimate restoration. I'm going to have a new body. I'll live in a new environment in a perfect community. Death will no longer be an issue. Fear won't be part of life or anything. It'll be in the presence of the living God who loves us.